You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Driving Law. I am your host, Kyla Lee, and with me is Paul Doroshenko from Acumen Law Corporation. Hi, I'm Paul Doroshenko. Thanks for listening. So Driving Law is a new podcast that uh, Paul and I are creating to deal with uh, the issue of driving and the law. There's always so many new um, driving-related decisions and cases and legislation that I thought it would be a good way for the public to become informed of the different things the government is trying to do with respect to driving and the law and their obligations and rights as drivers. The thing is that driving uh, affects so many people. So many people drive, they need their licenses to drive, and so it's a regular common topic whenever there's strange Uh, news about driving or developments in the law of driving, we're often asked to comment uh, on uh, radio programs and things like that, and we never really get to go into it uh, with the depth that we would like to, uh, and to sort of give you a sense of the way that we end up discussing it uh, in our office as uh, as things play out and as we learn about it. Yeah, um, and I think it's also really important for us maybe to tell our listeners in this first episode who we are and why we relate to driving. I didn't know we were going to do that, Kyla, but so you can start. And okay. <laughs> well, I'm Kyla Lee. I'm a lawyer and I deal with a lot of driving cases, primarily judicial reviews of immediate roadside prohibitions, traffic t- ticket defense, uh, defending driving prohibitions with the superintendent of motor vehicles, impaired driving by drugs or alcohol charges, that's sort of the majority of my practice. So I'm Paul Doroshenko. Uh, when I was a child, I played with a lot of toy cars. And then when I was 16, I got my driver's license in Edmonton and I managed to rack up a number of tickets. Uh, I paid close attention to what the police officers were doing and I defended myself on a couple of tickets and I did okay. Eventually, I became a lawyer and moved to British Columbia and it wasn't uh, my intention necessarily to do as much driving law as I do but I started doing impaired driving cases as soon as I um, was called to the bar and I've been defending driving cases ever since and Kyla was many years back now uh, my article student and uh, she's one of those people who figured things out very quickly and uh, basically has been teaching me ever since. Best damn student you ever had. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've had some pretty good students, but yeah. the I would, a lot better not, than me. <laughs> and I'm not going to start rating them, but the um, the it's rare when I explain things to my students that they understood it better than I did and could explain it back to me in a matter of months uh, better than I understood it. So what has sort of happened with me now? I've been practicing for a couple of decades, and um, I really rely on the people around me, such as Kyla, to tell me what developments happen in the law. I may, I may stumble upon it first. Speaking of developments that happened in the law, Paul, did you pay any attention in the last couple weeks just before Easter? The federal government tabled Bill C-75. Yes, other people have discussed and pointed out the fact that they tabled this, uh, um, hmm, I, I, I don't quite know what adjective I should use for it, but this legislation on a Friday before a long weekend maybe so people didn't pay attention. 
unfortunately, lawyers did pay attention and fortunately, yeah, fortunately, yeah, I guess yeah. fortunately, and and you know, a lot of major props go out to the defense bar as a whole for speaking out, putting their Easter weekend plans on hold, and saying, "Wait a minute, we're not going to accept this." Yeah, some email showed up in my uh, in my inbox discussing all of the flaws with it. I've done a three-hour analysis, one lawyer uh, did, and did a very good analysis uh, figuring out many of the problems with it. Our focus mostly is on the driving issue because, you know, we do a lot of driving law. And nobody really has talked about this driving issue, but there's a very significant change in a very small part of, of C-75 that's going to change the face of impaired driving prosecutions where somebody is uh, is in an accident or uh, is, is injured um, or, uh, God forbid, dies. Yes. So you're going to have to tell us about <laughs> yeah. Kyla because um, Kyla likes to text me at uh, you know four in the morning or or first thing in the morning, come into my office and tell me about these things. And a lot of times, I don't really understand it the first round through. And she has explained it to me, and I thought I understood it. And just before we started recording this, I wasn't quite so comfortable. So, uh, Kyla, w- w- what is the change? Okay, so currently, if you are charged with impaired driving causing bodily harm. The prosecution has to prove that you were impaired and that you drove and that there was bodily harm, but also that the bodily harm was caused by your impairment. Yeah. So, for example, a case I had recently, Mm -hmm. that case I was successful on in Chilliwac, Mm -hmm. um, with that uh, individual who had, uh, there was a woman who was walking down the street in the dark in the middle of the night, not on the sidewalk, and... Uh Aha, okay, so it was the pedestrian's fault that... For the accident. Yes, you wouldn't yeah. expect a pedestrian to be in the middle of the road in the middle of the night when there's a sidewalk there. Okay, Fair And there's enough. there's all sorts of jurisprudence on that. So a, a, a sober person probably would have run the person down. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But the change that's in Bill C-75, very small and nobody's talked about it, and they didn't put it in C-46, the overhaul of the impaired driving laws, is now instead of making the bodily harm connected to the impairment... It's so long as you cause bodily harm to another individual while committing an impaired driving offense. I, I don't follow. Explain it again. I'm sorry. So if you're I, driving I, while I impaired, if you're, if you're drunk and you're driving down the road and you hit that pedestrian who's in the middle of the street, who should be on the sidewalk, who's going to get hit by who, even a sober driver. Drunk. Yeah, yeah. Who, who themselves could be drunk. Um, you are responsible under the offense of impaired driving causing bodily harm as opposed to just straight impaired driving. Okay, I got that, I think. Tell me again what the new legislation says. So the new legislation, the exact wording is every person who, while committing an offense under, and then section 253, which is the criminal code provision for impaired driving, causes bodily harm to another person is guilty of an indictable offense or a summary offense. But they still have to cause the bodily harm. So if it's your passenger in your car and they've got their smoke and you're impaired while you're driving and they drop their cigarette on their lap and they burn themselves badly, that's you're not causing that bodily harm. No, but if they drop their beer and it rolls under your brake pedal and you can't stop the car because you were the driver and the car caused the bodily harm and you didn't, you know, 
take appropriate steps to ensure the things in your vehicle were secured, you're responsible under that section. All right. Well, I'm going to have to wrap my mind around that one. It's going to take me a little while, but I, I think the thing that disturbs me about it the most is that the government's playing the shell game. They didn't put it into the impaired driving overhaul. They've stuffed it into this massive omnibus bill uh, and uh, to try and sneak it in. And and the interesting thing, there's a, a fascinating pattern here that we're seeing with the federal liberals right now. And uh, I encourage Kyla to vote for the Liberals, and I'm not feeling very good about that right now. I never got that third sandwich. Yeah, it was two sandwiches. Anyway. It was three. Regardless, we can debate that off the air. But um, the thing that's fascinating is that they are passing these legislative changes in omnibus bills where they're gigantic bills, where you try and sort out what's going to go in here, what's going to go out there. It's a method of hiding uh, the changes. It's a method of forcing the opposition um, to sort of either look like they're weak on impaired driving or weak on criminal uh, issues when there's all sorts of problems with it. But the really surprising thing to me is that a lot of the changes that we see in the impaired driving legislation was put forward under the Harper regime by private members and it was laughed off the floor. Oh, I know. You know, the liberals, when they didn't hold all the power, were saying things like random breath testing is completely inconsistent with our constitutional values. And yet the second that they get elected, what bills do they introduce? All the bills that were were done as private members' bills to do the things that they said were unconstitutional. And, and quite literally, like when those things were brought in or, or put forward as private members' bills, all the parties looked at them and said no. It was usually just a few wing nuts uh, who supported those bills. And here we are. Now we've got uh, we've got um, some wings and some nuts uh, presenting legislation, I guess. Now another change to the impaired driving scheme in C-75 that I think is also worth mentioning, particularly as you bring up the Liberals doing the things that they said the other government was bad for doing, is they've actually increased the mandatory minimum penalties for certain impaired driving offenses, again, the blood alcohol over the limit, the impaired driving causing bodily harm. Yeah, you talked about this when you went and presented at the uh, Commons Committee, didn't you? No, this is in C-75. Oh, it's, oh okay, all right. Yeah, so so what, this what's is, in there? What does it say? So now, in you know how it's an illegal sentence to get jail and a fine? Yeah. Well, now it's not because oh. they wrote <laughs> it in. Yes, if you get convicted of impaired driving causing bodily harm, your sentencing isn't just whatever the judge gives you, which could be anywhere from a fine to a driving prohibition to a, you know, to a suspended sentence to a, um, to a jail term. Now you're liable for up to 10 years in prison on an indictable offense or up to two years less a day on a summary conviction, plus the minimum penalties that you would get if there weren't bodily harm. So the mandatory minimum $1,000 fine, one-year driving prohibition, or higher if it's a subsequent offense. Ha, huh. okay, that's crazy. You know, I, I remember back in our, in our bar course in BC, it's called the Professional Legal Training Course, PLTC, uh, it had uh, some suggestion that you could do that, and nobody could ever find, who, you know, what that, <laughs> any support for that. And most people felt that it was wrong, uh, and that there was a misstatement in the material, and it seemed to be repeated in the material. And now it's going to be legislated into. Uh 
or are you saying that Jody Wilson got the idea to completely overhaul this section of the criminal code from incorrect PLTC materials? Uh, she went through PLTC just before me, I think, so she <laughs> probably was relying on the same incorrect material and has now decided to put it into law. Okay, well, Great. I guess if that's what, uh, <clears throat> you know, but I, but again, you know, this is a, a party that campaigned on repealing the mandatory minimums that Harper put in place, and now that here they are creating mandatory minimums and being all hush-hush about it by slipping it into some tiny provision nobody's paying attention to in an omnibus bill that has far more disturbing sections than this. Well, and they're always talking about delay. They're so concerned about the Jordan decision, and they're so concerned about delay, and then when they come up with harsher and harsher punishment, you know, the, the judge is not going to go above this ridiculous harsh punishment in most cases, so there, you've got nothing to lose by fighting to the end, like every last charter argument you can. Run a 10-day trial on an impaired driving case uh, because, you know, worst case scenario, you're going to get this ridiculously high mandatory minimum. Yeah. Um, and I guess that doesn't at all very nicely segue us into the next topic that I wanted to, to talk about, which is uh, an announcement made here in British Columbia by our Attorney General about distracted driving. Oh, it does. It does tie together, Kyla, because, you know, drivers are always under the gun and they are uh, very easy targets when they do something wrong. When the government wants to generate revenue, the immediate roadside prohibition scheme here in BC was uh, basically a method of uh, turning uh, drunk drivers from a financial liability to a revenue generator. So this is um, another thing where we're looking at the government uh, turning to drivers as a revenue generator. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, with all the problems, financial problems that ICBC has currently and all of the illegal money laundering and our housing market and everything else that sucks in BC, there's one boogeyman that we all can agree on, and that's distracted driving. So... Back up for our listeners who are out of BC, if you're here in BC, you probably know that in March we released some statistics from the coroner's office, uh, which showed that uh, fewer than 1% a year most years, and in many locations such as Vancouver, uh, nobody was dying from any distracted driving, uh, cell phone use, cell phone use. Um, see, look there, I got caught in the shell game right yep. there. Yeah, I got caught in the shell game. So the government releases these statistics that says 78 to 88 people are dying in British Columbia every year from cell phones. And we're talking to police officers and we're like, how many people are you dealing, scraping off the road uh, because of uh, they were using their cell phone or they, you know... Is that the what the ice scraper's for if you live in the lower mainland? Yeah, yeah exactly. You have to scrape your, your <laughs> car every once in a while. Okay, here. three days a year. Anyway, the, uh, the we couldn't find any police officers who had ever been to an accident aside from like the minorest fender bender once in 20 years uh, where a cell phone was the issue and so I mean we th these cases the people phone our office we would have expected those phone calls to our office I mean we it's what we market for we've been waiting for those people uh, as clients I guess but they, they they weren't coming so we were deeply suspicious of this 7888 thing and we found out it was actually two people a year maybe one person a year some years nobody dying in accidents where the coroner could say an electronic device was an issue. But they call it distracted driving. And and that name encompasses all sorts of types of distraction, but the actual text of our law only deals with 
electronic devices. Yeah, and, and of course they're connecting the two. They're saying that it's all cell phones, it's all cell phones, it's all cell phones. Distracted driving is dangerous, but they don't ever bring out these other statistics that we brought out. It was a news story and everything. Uh, and the, the reason, I mean, the reason, the thing that motivated us was the fact that we knew that there was nobody uh, dying and we couldn't find any police officer who was could tell us that they'd been in an accident under those circumstances. So we made this freedom of information request. We got the information from the coroner's office and we put it out there because in the last year we've seen this circumstance. The previous Attorney General, Suzanne Anton, and then uh, with the BC Liberal government and now with our current Attorney General, David Eby, uh, basically they're, they're, they're once again vilifying these people who pick up their cell phones at an intersection, uh, giving them really uh, extremely harsh tickets in those circumstances for demerits on your license and so forth. Um, yeah, and or I think it's, up their phone. it's it's telling that you don't see the police doing the enforcement with moving traffic. You see them doing it at the intersections that get really backed up at the end of the day or before the long weekend. They're always in the places where they know the light cycles are long, so drivers are going to be like, oh, oh God, what's going to take so long? And look at their phone. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, these for the most part are not uh, are not the worst people um, and they're being treated like the worst people right now in BC. If you get two cell phone tickets in two years or you get a cell phone ticket and you've got some other ticket, uh, the you're going to get a letter called a notice of intent to prohibit. They're going to take your license for four months. So uh, it's heavy duty. But this week, that was all an intro. That was a yeah. long intro. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a long intro. Yeah, but you need you the know, history. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important to know uh, that we're kind of are deeply invested in this. But uh, this week, the Attorney General came out and said they're considering, considering, they think they should reconsider. I sounded a little bit like Donald Trump there, didn't I? That's awful. <laughs> considering. We can edit that out. We removing won't. people's, uh, not giving, not insuring them, uh, canceling their insurance, uh, their government-run insurance, uh, if uh, they're in an accident and uh, they were using their phones. So they would be in violation of their insurance condition. The government wouldn't pay. Yeah, which means you're responsible for your own health care costs if you were in an accident. and Well, that's the next step of it, yeah. That's, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's the insurance doesn't pay and then you're, you're out of pocket for all yeah. of that. But think about all the things, Paul, that you're covered for on government-run insurance, like your health insurance and your car insurance, that are stupid, that people do, that we know are bad, and yet I pay for it, you pay for it, we all pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And people, they, they ski out of bounds. How much money is spent every year on search and rescue? And nobody is making those people repay that and repay their medical expenses when they, you know, do something stupid while skiing. The guy in the motorcycle who takes a, uh, a dangerous pass when there's a parked vehicle up ahead and he causes a collision, um, you know, he's provided with insurance. It might be a, a poor decision on his part, poor tactical decision. It's like picking up your phone's a poor tactical decision. Uh, but are you are you going to not provide him with insurance after that? Are you not going to provide for his his health care? Oh, you know? And and I mean, take it to the like to even one step further. Like we cover the health care costs of people who end up with emphysema, lung cancer, all these diseases related to smoking and tobacco use, and we've been paying that for, for that for years, even though we know that smoking is dangerous and causes cancer. Seems to me that it's a non-starter, and it's uh, <laughs> it's quite surprising that an NDP government, the government of socialized medicine, would be floating a concept uh, where they would deny medical coverage to a certain sector of the public who 
did something stupid for a fraction of a second or a few minutes or a few moments. And in the same week, too, where in BC they tabled, or they're talking about tabling next week legislation that would uh, eliminate the ability of people to get two-tiered access to, to medis- medical treatments. So this is quite fascinating to us that the government's even floating this. Uh, you know, uh, it, it may never come to pass. Governments, every once in a while, put something out in the media to talk about it and see the response. Uh, this, to us, is an amazing response, amazing, uh, poorly thought out suggestion. But the other fascinating aspect of this is that, you know, despite the the statistics that demonstrate clearly that the cell phones, although they're dangerous, are not causing the carnage on the roads uh, in BC. We are, and I'm speaking now for I think the public generally, seem to be very receptive to the vilification of people who use their cell phone in any manner while driving. Yeah, and this, they could change the law to deal with the issues of distracted driving that are more likely to be causing the deaths like all of those external distractions you know eating while driving my dad he used to drive us to school shaving with one hand Mm. and drinking his coffee with the other irresponsible dad i used to uh drive my tr6 when i was a a salesman in edmonton and i'd often be eating with chopsticks with my with my manual tr6 with the top down but i was very cool (laughs) i was a cool guy but see and that was in alberta right yeah, well, Al- Alberta has laws that say no eating while driving. Now they do. No, now yeah. they do, but that was because somebody saw me. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Anyway. But it, I mean, why are we not passing laws like that here? Why are we not looking at okay, if cell phones aren't the problem, what is the problem, and what legislative changes can we make that make sense to deal with that, rather than essentially taxing drivers for healthcare costs because they had the phone in their vehicle? Well, I want to talk about a couple other things um, there. Think about this. I mean, just I'm sorry. I, I'm sort of jumping around now, and That's I okay. apologize for that. Um, how the heck would they ever prove that a person was on their phone in most cases? I mean, there may be cases they can, but in the cases where they lay, they lay that allegation, uh, and then they refuse their health care coverage, and maybe there's a hundred and fifty thousand dollar bill, and the cars, you know, another seventy five thousand dollars that ICBC isn't paying out. I'm telling you right now, it's going to be litigated. It's going to cost money. Judges are not going to be enthusiastic about refusing to provide people with insurance. Yep. It's just like it, on a for, from a pure feasibility level. But how? I'm glad you asked that question actually, because I've been question. thinking about that too. The question of how are they going to prove it, and <clears throat> and what gets me from like the purely legal perspective is the method that they're going to use to do the evidence gathering because in any case you know you might see a phone in the car in the wreckage of the accident but you know as well as i do and anybody else with common sense that stuff gets flung around everywhere oh yeah and so are they going to get production orders for cell phone records are they going to search a cell phone and then you've got all those supreme court of canada decision on third well, party this text is for message? a civil this is for a civil yeah, aspect and for a it, civil right? aspect not even a criminal charge so where does the authority come from to get this information and how how do you justify the privacy violation when you have n- really no more than a suspicion that maybe a cell phone was involved? Of course, they could write a piece of legislation saying that you have to prove that you weren't using your cell phone 
No, the government would never reverse the burden onto the person facing the consequence, Paul. <laughs> anyway, yes. So um, that is yet another issue and significant concern for British Columbians because if the government is actually considering doing that, uh, I can tell you they're going to face some political repercussions. Yes, political repercussions and <clears throat> constitutional challenges, charter challenges, which brings me to our last topic of discussion for Three today. Three topics. Uh, that's a lot, Kyla. But it's one topic. Okay. It's, right. it's marijuana roadside Ooh. testing because oh, okay. we're <clears throat> like we're heading into the the advent of of legalization and um there's a rumor that next week legislation is going to be tabled that uh deals maybe with roadside testing for marijuana in british columbia and what our administrative scheme may look like so a little plug for acumen law here the lawyers at acumen law corporation who deal with uh, immediate roadside prohibitions and drinking and driving cases We've taken the training of standardized field sobriety testing that uh, the police officers take, and we've also taken a significant training in drug recognition evaluation. We call it, they call it experts. I don't really think of them as experts, but in any event, Kyla, go ahead. The reason we did this was because, of course, we're driving away. Right, okay. Was that That's your radio? The the plug? That's the end of the plug. <laughs> was that your radio advertiser voice? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so there's sort of three things that have been bandied about in the discussion to deal with roadside testing for marijuana impairment. SFSTs, the standardized field sobriety tests, saliva testing at the roadside for drugs, and the drug recognition evaluation. And since you and I are both well-versed in those things, I thought we could talk about the flaws and maybe not the flaws, if there are not flaws with some of them. All of them. There are flaws with all of them. But there are also... Start start with the presumption of flaws. Well, well, there's definitely a presumption of flaws on this podcast, but there might not be flaws too. Standardized field sobriety tests for marijuana. Three, two, one. Go, Kyle Lee. They were never approved by NHTSA for that purpose. In fact, they were only ever approved for the use of, of determining whether or not there's a possibility that the person was impaired by alcohol. All of the testing that the National Highway uh, Traffic Safety Association did when they were developing standardized field sobriety tests was initially to try and use them for drugs and specifically marijuana. This is way back in the day. And um, as they did the testing, they realized this has no applicability to marijuana impairment. So they switched their focus to alcohol and found, okay, it makes better sense here. So what are the tests with the standardized field sobriety test? The first one that they will offer often do is what's called horizontal gaze nystagmus uh, and that is some people call it the pen test that's a police officer holding an object in front a pen a finger what have you uh, and looking for involuntary jerking of the eye when the eye is basically uh, off to the side uh, as far as you can can look to the side in in most cases with officers doing it incorrectly Um, and looking for that jerking and what happens what's the experience of nystagmus as a result of cannabis kyla lee there's no nystagmus with cannabis use it's not it's not expected to be present so if you see nystagmus you should be thinking okay not cannabis but also nystagmus can be caused by all sorts of other factors sure head injury yeah, or administration of the test incorrectly. You take the, the stimulus, the object or your finger or whatever that you're holding for the individual to track, and you hold it at a place that's uncomfortable for the eye, you're going to get that involuntary jerking. There's 
rules about where the stimulus is supposed to be held in relation to the subject's face and eyes and, and you um, and the positioning of this. And try being a police officer, just practically, try being a police officer in the dark at the roadside with somebody who's maybe or maybe not on drugs or alcohol. That's hard to do. Yeah, I, I think if you're doing it in the lab, you might be able to do it correctly. I don't think that police officers ever really do it correctly. But regardless, it's it's uh, cannabis in your body does not cause nystagmus or nystigmus. No jerking, involuntary jerking of the eye. So that's the first test, and that one's out. Now, the rest of the tests are called divided attention tests, which basically are just to see whether or not you can perform, uh, you know, like a performing animal um, <laughs> and, and not screw up uh, or fall over. So it's an opportunity, you know, you see it if you watch it in, uh, on, on YouTube and you watch some police officers in the U.S. where they conduct these tests regularly, do them. Basically, they're just waiting for the person to fall over or admit that they're drunk. Oh, yeah, and it's designed to trick you. The instructions are, are, are given to you in a cryptic manner so that you start too soon or that you don't complete a turn correctly, which isn't even a clue, but they'll count it against you anyway. Um, you know, they'll do all these things uh, in the delivery of the test that then lead to you essentially failing the test. And they'll tell you it's okay to do it wrong. You know, yeah, you can put your foot down and start again. You know, they'll tell you that. But, of course, that's a clue if you put your foot down and start again. So, But none of these things tell you anything about cannabis. And the interesting thing is when they do test people who have been using cannabis, they do very well in these tests, actually. So. Yeah, I think you you know your experience of time slows down, and so you have more time to think about it, yeah. or at least you feel like you do. Maybe maybe your experience of time slows down, and you can rethink over the directions as it happens. Yeah. But in any event, uh, so standardized field sobriety tests to determine whether or not a person is impaired in their ability to operate a motor vehicle by cannabis. Eh bad idea. But I, I will say one thing to be fair to the standardized field sobriety. Oh, two things. Okay. To be fair to the standardized field sobriety tests. First thing I'll say is to be fair, they're generally quick to administer. So you can do them at the roadside in not a long period of time. And so the detention is minimal. And the second thing that I'll say about them is that eh, the Court of Appeals kind of already said you can use them for that purpose. So it makes the law a lot easier for the government. Well, the other thing is it's cheap because what do you need? A pen or a finger and a sheet of paper to record the the results. And uh, an imaginary line. And an imaginary line. And the other thing I like about them as a defense lawyer is that it's always wrong. So I can always pick apart the standardized field sobriety tests. I've had a few cases with them uh, over the years, and it was um, very easy to demonstrate why the police officer had done it incorrectly. So success for my client and me. <laughs> the other um, testing that is being contemplated is saliva testing for drugs. And Paul, you read some studies that were conducted by the government on this and why that would be flawed. Well, you should have warned me that you were going to ask me that question, <laughs> Kyla, but yes, I did review a bunch of data uh, about it and they had uh, a huge uh, inaccuracy rate. So there was false positives and many false negatives. Uh, it was very easy for the police officers to do it incorrectly. Uh, they're doing it at the roadside trying to take a sample from somebody and analyze it. And you can imagine how easily it would be contaminated. It requires a little bit of time, 
uh, it's not uh, it's not something that really tells you a whole lot. And and what is it going to tell you in the end? The THC is present, but doesn't tell you anything again about impairment. Yeah, and the inaccuracies in the saliva testing, when they did all of the studies, they found that they were largely contributed to by the ambient temperature. And so you take somebody in Vancouver, that's not a really big concern. The ambient temperature here most of the time is livable. But, you know, John Smith up in Dawson Creek is not going to feel very good about a saliva test that he's getting. Winnipeg. Well, we're talking about provincial. 35 degrees. Well, sure. You have a Winnipeg Minus wherever. 35 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> Where, wherever, right? I mean, the, the rest of Canada doesn't live here. Lillooet. Okay, yeah. Lillooet. Lillooet. It's, um, it's most days 30, in the summer, the hottest degrees, place yeah. in the province. Mm. Yep. So there's a problem there with saliva testing, and we really don't see any solutions coming out at any time soon. Now, one thing that people aren't saying about this saliva testing and the temperatures that bothers me, and, and you mentioned Lillooet and Dawson Creek and Manitoba, people who are living, often the people who are living in these extreme temperature locations, the Northwest Territory, Yukon, are our indigenous populations in this country. I thought you were going to say the people who live in these locations need to strike up a doobie because it's so cold. And they, Yes, it's true. Um, the, you know, obviously, yeah. And the concern is that what we see is, you know, we're in Vancouver and we represent people from all over British Columbia and Alberta, but there's a lot of people who don't get to us until it's too late. Sometimes they find out about us, you know, with IRPs and things like that after the fact, and it's because they don't have those same resources in the community. Uh, and they may be subject to, uh, to, um, uh, basically being, uh, singled out as a result of their of their uh, indigenous status. Yeah, you have the privilege of of being not indigenous and and therefore more likely to live in a, you know, a major urban zone and have access to the res- these resources, but also um you have these people who are living in, in you know where their reserve is and they don't have any choice over that or um in their traditional territory and they're going to be disproportionately affected by false positives on drug tests when they're already disproportionately singled out for testing as a result of of minority status. It's it's going to, and I don't think anybody's really thought about this, it's going to have a significant impact on the Indigenous population of this country. Yeah, and it's another concern. And, uh, you know, of course, we have a, a very large Indigenous population in British Columbia, and we already see um, I guess <clears throat> some forms of, of uh, police singling them out, uh, you know, indigenous people to start with, and it's it's quite a concern for us in our office. I can tell you. So saliva testing inaccurate and disproportionately affecting people who shouldn't be disproportionately affected. And 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 affecting people who are not going to be a, able to mount the same uh, challenge to it and the defense to it. Um, you know, when they're in rural communities. So are you giving saliva testing an eh, eh? 
saliva testing. Okay. All right. So the last one then is the drug recognition evaluation. This is the 12 step and that's no accident program that is designed to test somebody to determine three things, whether or not their ability to operate a motor vehicle is impaired by a drug or a medical condition. If it is a drug, uh, what class or category that drug, uh, that drug comes from. Yeah, so this was developed by the National Highway Traffic Safety in the U.S., NHTSA, as it's sometimes called, and uh, NHTSA does their own um, sort of development of this material, of these sorts of theories and, and methods, uh, and uh, it's never interestingly ever subject to any peer review outside of NHTSA. Well, it's the NHTSA circle jerk. Yeah. So the only time it's really called into question, because again, there's no peer review, is when it's dealt with in courts in the States. And in 25 of 50 states, they basically rejected it, uh, found it not to be reliable. So they've got a 50% uh, acceptance rate in their own country. But in Canada, uh, it's been given the stamp of approval because we've called drug recognition uh, police officers experts. Yep, that word is written into the legislation, and so the Supreme Court of Canada said, well, I guess they're experts because the law says they're experts. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's in the legislation and the regulations, and the regulations are the one that just says, oh yeah, every police officer who's had this training pursuant to the uh, International Association of Police Chiefs are experts, but the interesting thing is, we actually don't do that method. No, we take (laughs) out sort of... I think the most important step that gives the police the most information, which is the interview of the subject about what they were using drugs for and why. Now, I don't like the interview because, of course, if a police officer detains a person and makes a DRE demand, uh, then they compel them to do all of these tests and are subject to all of these tests. Uh, And they're also interviewed. And you can be charged with refusal if you refuse to participate with the with the program, um, and uh, part of the program, of course, is the uh, is the questioning that they don't really do. I never liked the idea of the questioning. We abandoned the questioning because it would be contrary to your right to counsel, uh, and in the end, so we've dropped the 12 steps and kind of... Don't give them ideas, Paul, because they'll probably bring back the questioning now that they are writing away the charter. Well, it wouldn't matter anyway. Uh, basically, when this went to the Supreme Court of Canada, the whole concept of, of experts in Bingley last year, if you're a lawyer, you probably know about it, but the uh, uh, Supreme Court of Canada said, yeah, sure, they can call them experts. Of course, you can rip them apart and demonstrate that they don't really know anything if you have that uh, skill as a lawyer and knowledge. So that's uh, basically kind of where that stands as far as dealing with it in court. Well, I mean, there's, there. I, I'm not going to, no spoilers on this show, but there's one other challenge that hasn't been brought yet, but could be. Well, you can either tell us about it now, or you can, we can talk about DRE for this purpose <laughs> of cannabis legislation that's coming up. So really, um, in order to do those DRE tests, a police officer has to come to the conclusion that the person on uh, a balance of probabilities is impaired in their, uh, capacity or their ability to operate a motor vehicle. Unless they do it differently under provincial legislation, let's wait and see. Maybe they're going to write some lower standard. And if they did that, though, they're still going to run into a huge problem because lots of the things that the court in Civia and then Goodwin, the Supreme Court of Canada, identified as the saving graces of the IRP scheme were its, its immediacy and how quickly it could be administered. And the DRE is not quick. 
No, and you've got to get somebody to uh, a well-lit place in order to do it, and um, you've got to have consistent lighting. I mean, they, they talk about lighting in the DRE, but they never tell you, like, how many lumens and how bright it's got to be or anything. But, the um, yeah, you can't just do that any of that at the roadside. And you can't just drag them to a nearby Tim Hortons either because you also need a dark room. Like, you need a space that has the capacity to perform the tests. Generally, they're done at the police detachment. But in the end, the tests really don't do much for you <laughs> in any event. So, I mean, on a, on a beyond a reasonable doubt standard, we've never had a case that uh, looking at the DRE results would conclude, lead to the conclusion that uh, the person was impaired in their ability to drive by a drug. Um, we've had, uh, you know, police officers putting forward their theories. In every case, it's either fallen away one way or another for us. But So drug recognition evaluations are obviously not going to be very feasible for provincial uh, roadside regulation of the specter of marijuana impaired driving. So what rating would you give that? Eh. Okay, so we've got SF, S, SFSTs, eh, saliva, eh, DRE, eh, and I can't make that noise as good as you. Yeah, you do a good job. So yeah. what what do police do? It's funny because the uh, I kind of hope that somebody from the government would just phone us every once in a while and ask us what to do with the IRP scheme. We get a piece of the legislation struck down or we dig something up that demonstrates that what they're doing is completely wrong or, you know, we file a lawsuit and then they, you know, concede defeat and what have you. Um, you would think that at this point they would phone us. What do you do? Uh, my biggest concern here is that no matter what they do, it's going to end up on somebody's driving record and it's going to look like drugs. And if they do that uh, with the hokey evidence they're going to be relying on, they are going to be destroying people's lives. Yeah, your driving record, you know, back in the day when there was all this case law being developed and argued about your driving record and things being reflected on your record, that was when your record wasn't easily accessible on basically anyone with the minimum level of clearance on a CPIC check. When well, they, well, they email it to you now. You're applying for a job that can make you phone ICBC while you're sitting there and get it emailed to your employer. And you don't even have to verify the email address is yours that it's being emailed to. You can literally type in any email address and have it sent there. Yeah. So uh, my biggest concern is the driving record and, and people ending up with these prohibitions on their driving record on the basis of really a police officer's, I don't know, I mean, uh, suspicion, uh, uh completely pathetic suspicion, really good suspicion, I don't know, uh, but, you know, on their driving record, can't really be challenged. The evidence is uh, disappeared uh, moments later because the person's uh, ability, whatever, they, they, you know, they use smokes of marijuana and, and all the symptoms disappear within half an hour. Um, that's my biggest concern, and I think the government, no matter what they come up with, should have something that either doesn't show up on your driving record or is expunged from your driving record in a very short period of time. Or and, and I don't think that they can come up with anything that's harsh punishment. I think really what they've got to focus on is just taking the driver off the road to protect the public. Yeah, and if you are going to record it on the driving record, take the word drugs out because that word is so loaded and it has so many implications for people for their employment and for border crossings and volunteering. And, uh, I mean, is that not a fair compromise? Mike Farnworth, are you out there? Are you listening? Well, I can probably guess that Mike Farnworth isn't listening. But uh, anyway, <laughs> maybe somebody out there agrees with us. Maybe they don't. Um, that is, uh, I think, the last thing that we wanted to talk about 
today. Yeah. So yeah. thanks for tuning in to the very first episode ever of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation. Yeah, and I'm Paul Doroshenko, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, at Paul Doroshenko. You can find us at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. You can find Kyla on Twitter at IRP Lawyer. IRP Lawyer. And uh, I also have a website, KylaLee.ca, where I publish a blog that also deals with a lot of stuff related to driving law. And if you have a driving case, call Acumen Law Corporation at 604-685-8889. So that's it. Thanks a lot. And uh, we look forward to doing this again. Okay.